We are kicking off a brand new series. Everybody say, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, until we recognize what topic it is. The the most uh, neglected in some cases, maybe the most abused in others, is the topic of our finances, our resources, our stuff. And for most of us, we have never actually done an in-depth study or considered what does God say about money, about our possessions. We are going to be in a, a series with some diagnostic questions, and we are going to do some investigative work about our own lives. Turn to your neighbor and say, it's going to get personal. Let, let them know it's, it's, it's going to get real personal, okay? Here's the big S word we're going to be looking at for, for a number of weeks, stewardship stewardship because stewardship only christians have a a true understanding and can truly live out this concept of stewardship because only we recognize that we worship the one true god that from his hand we possess all that we have we're the only people on the planet that can recognize i'm a steward meaning i don't own anything I am being borrowed all that I have, and the lender is going to hold me accountable for what do I do with his stuff. And so the first question that we want to be asking is, how do you see your stuff? How do you see your stuff? Do you believe that God's word has a, maybe just a few things to, to say about our stuff? Quick survey. All right, everybody ready for the facts, right? Some, some Bible trivia. Scripture states at least in 2,500 verses something relating to stewardship or to things that we possess or own or how to handle the things that have been given to us. Anybody think that's a major theme in, in all of Scripture? It's kind of a big deal. It's kind of a big deal. And so Matthew 26, Matthew 26, which is on page 917 in my Bible. Everybody say, who cares? Yep, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. My Bible's my Bible. You better have your own. You better have a copy of God's Word open. Be looking at at least starting in Matthew 26. Hold your place there. And as you do, we need to consider this term vertical. Vertical is the lens through which followers of Jesus are to view all of life, especially money. Vertical is the lens in which we are to, to view everything. We don't just see things horizontally. God's people are always looking up. We're asking the question, God, what is your perspective? Because the way I view money might not be accurate. I need a vertical perspective. So the question, are you viewing it vertically? We have a number of evaluation tools we're going to be looking at before we dive into this. And we look at a few characters in the New Testament in regards to stewardship. I would ask that we would take this series seriously not because the, the church is after your money and is going to guilt you and nag you. The reality of the matter is money was spoken more about from the mouth of Jesus than heaven and hell combined. It's not because money is the most important, but it may be the easiest to become the most important in our lives if we're not careful. So God has not been silent and neither is the church and neither should we in regards to this area of what do we do with God's stuff? Do we see it? Do we view it? 
vertically. So let's get low before the Lord. Father, we need your help to see what you have said, not what tradition says, not what grandma said, not where we're at even in our households, what our current view is. But God, we want to view it your way. Help us to see from your word all the ways in which maybe we're getting it confused, twisted. God, we want to have your perspective. We want to have your lenses to be able to see what you see. We want to agree with you. So wherever there's disagreement in the handling of your stuff compared to what your word says, wherever in our hearts there are things out of place, God, we surrender right now. We give you permission to change our minds, change our hearts, change our value system. God, for some of us, we are very reluctant to do that. But God, you're greater than our stubbornness. You're greater than our greed. You're greater than all the worldliness that captures our hearts. God, you are bigger and you are better. You are more glorious. You are more valuable than everything. So we're going to pursue you right now, God. By your help, we want to pursue you. We want your heart to be our heart in this matter. We pray in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen, amen. Let's do this. Let's make a commitment in our hearts. I'm resolved to see my finances God's way. I'm resolved to view from God's perspective all that I own, all that I have. And again, nobody can make you do that, but would you just join me in, in your heart just saying, I'm resolved, I'm committed, I'm committed to doing that. As we, as we start each message that we would make that commitment, I want to see it vertically. I want to see it your way, God. Just in your heart right now, say, God, teach me, change me. As you look at Matthew 26, I want you to flip to verses 14 through 16, and I want us to see this. Matthew 26, 14, we're going to look at the life of Judas. And if you're taking notes, jot this down. Money is a test. Money's a test. It's a, it's a test. And we're, we're going to ask the, the strange, strange question today. How did, how did Judas do? How well did Judas fare in this test of, of money? Well, here we go. Here we go. Let's look at Judas, verse 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot was one of the 12. And Judas did what? What is Judas famous for? He did what? He he betrayed Jesus. He betrayed his master. He betrayed the God of the universe to his face. That's what his legacy is. One of the 12, Judas, he went to the chief priests. Remember last week we were, we were looking at uh, Holy Week and looking at Resurrection Sunday and think about the events leading up to that. We're not too far off from the Easter season to consider what led up to that point. And Judas is at the center of this story. And what did he do? He says, what, what will you give me if I deliver him, Jesus, over to you? What will you give me, he says, to the chief priest? What, what's in it for me? I mean, how twisted is that, right? What do I get out of this deal? Give me, give me, give me, give me. Somebody turn to your neighbor and say, give me. Gimme, give gimme, give gimme, give gimme. There, there's Judas. 
And before we point the finger at Judas, is there a little bit of that in all of us? What, what's in it for me? What, what's in it for me? I'm looking out for number one. What will you give me? And from that moment, from what moment? From that moment, the moment that he gets that money, he sought an opportunity to betray him, to betray Jesus, to take our relationship where he used to say, I'm for you. I'm following you, Jesus. I'm all in and I'm fully committed. And within a few years, what's in it for me and how can I get what's coming my way? Judas betrayed God himself with a kiss. So what in the world does that have to do with finances? All right, preacher dude, I know you did a lot of drugs and you got ADHD and you're probably not in your meds this morning. So where are we going with Judas? What does it have to do with me paying my bills and making a budget? What in the world does it have to do, all right? I think it might have everything to do with what God wants to teach us here. If we're gonna view it vertically, we gotta ask this question. How did, Judas, how did Judas do in regards to his stewardship? Because do we know that Judas was, he was kind of the, the operations guy. We realize that, right? He had the operational budget. He was the one in charge. Why would Judas be the one in charge? Why is he handling the money? Because um, obviously to everybody else, he seemed like, and everything pointed in the direction of he was the most responsible. He was the most skilled. He was the one that everybody trusted. The most trustworthy one in the group handles the money. And if the most trustworthy one ends up with this, as his legacy and at the end of his story of betrayal, do you think possibly we may be tempted that we're not beyond the capacity to do some things we never thought that we would do? Well, back, if we back up John 12, Mary says this, um, and to give us a little bit of background about this guy, Judas, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure fat, pure nard. Everybody say nard. All right, there's a word of the day, okay? And anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. But Judas, everybody say, but Judas. But Judas, what did he do? What did he do? Boom, Judas, what are you gonna do next? One of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, it says this, that Judas was watching this whole scene play out of this woman that was broken over her sin and that she took the thing that was most valuable to her and sacrificed it. Judas looking on, Mary doing what only from the heart she could do with worship and sacrifice. And Judas's response was this, why, why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? I mean, the, perfu the perfume was whose again? Was it, was it Judas's? No, no, it was Mary's. And so Mary could do what she wanted to do with what she owned, and she chose Jesus, okay? And the concerned financier of the posse of disciples, uh, very troubled, very concerned about all that could have been leveraged with the amount of money and can we ask the question, do you ever get concerned about the way other people use their, their money 
Does it ever trouble you? Does it ever trouble you to the point that maybe some things come out of your mouth of, <laughs> if I had that much, I think I'd be a little wiser. I think I would use it for something a little bit better than that. And man, I can't believe they would waste so much money. And wait a minute, Judas. Let's get our eyes on ourselves as we're busy kind of scanning the horizon of what others are doing with what they have because it's a little easier to check out what everybody else is doing and not doing. And maybe there's a little bit of Judas heart in, in me. And what was he so concerned about the stewardship? Was he so burdened that we, what does he say next? Well, th this could have given, could have gave 300 denarii to the poor. Could have gave it to the poor. I'm concerned about the poor. Are, are you really? Is that, is that where your heart's at? I would be so much wiser, so much more careful and compassionate with, with my money if I had what they had. I would use it for better purposes. For the poor, I'm just so moved with compassion. And verse six tells us this in John 12. He said this not because he cared about the poor. Everybody say, duh. But because he was a thief. Judas wasn't just in charge of the money. He wasn't just in charge of freaking out about what other people were doing with their money. He was stealing. What his mouth said sounded good, where his heart went was evil. I'm glad none of us are guilty of that. Not like Judas. He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and he had charge of the money bag and he used it to help himself to what was put into it. I will handle it as long as I get to say what's done with it and I'm gonna use it for me while I criticize others for the way that they use their money. Interesting. Do, do you believe that may, maybe church folk might be a little bit guilty of that? Of like, look at the way that I handle my finances. Look at how much I sacrifice and if, if we took a little tour around the church, I could tell you, uh, I, I gave that. Uh, I can let you know how much it was too. And uh, my name should be on it, but it's not. And I'm hoping someday it will, right? And, uh, and if anybody asks me to volunteer, I'm gonna make sure everybody knows, do you know how much time and money I put into that? That was me. That was me. Because I'm not like those people that are selfish with their money. No, not at all. Not like you with a Judas heart, right? We have a problem. We have a problem. And it doesn't always look like a problem on the, on the surface. He didn't just want to gain money. He wanted control of how others used their money too. So in what way did God design money to be a test? Because we started off with this. Money is a test. Money is a test. How did, how did Judas do? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Everybody help me out. Truth by voting. Boo! He failed the test. He had an opportunity to be victorious and he completely tanked. Do you believe that there is an opportunity to pass or fail in regards to what God gives you and me? I don't know about you, but some of us, we, we go through seasons where we have more than enough. That's a test. Maybe we go through seasons where we're freaking out and anxiety ridden. We're able to pay for our anxiety medication, but we're not able to pay the bills, right? The reality is whether we have little or much it's always a test. Here, here's a couple of ways because we want to be practical, right? Everybody say, get practical. Here we go. 
Money is a test of what? It's a test of your work ethic. Money is a test of your work ethic. If someone's struggling financially, we would first look at how hard you work, right? Some people resent what others have, but in many cases, they don't recognize that the reason they have that is because they busted their tail for decades and they were wise and they saved. And so don't resent others for having what they have because for some, they actually worked hard, saved big time, and they have what they have because they did what they, what they did. And work ethic, you think that's a big one? You think God is concerned about uh, what you do and how hard you work and your motive for working? Do you think God cares about that? Everybody shake your head. Yeah, he sure does. He absolutely does. And here's another test about this. Money is a test of your self-control. Live on less than you make. It's a test of self-control. It's a revealer of storing up treasure in heaven, storing up treasure on earth. What are we What are we doing in regards to our wants and our desires? Don't store up treasure on earth, treasure in heaven, Matthew 6, 19 and 20. And for some of us, we'd be like, that's not my problem. That's not not my issue. All right, keep tracking with me. How about this? Number three, everybody say number three. All right, here's here's our third one, integrity. Money is a test of your integrity. Maybe, just, just maybe. How did you get what you have? Not what you have, but how did you get it? Did you take shortcuts? Did you do things that you now have regrets about or that you're still on the run trying to justify and hide because you know that the way you got it is not God's way? Are you withholding? Are you holding back what is rightfully others? Mark 12, 17, Jesus said, render to Caesar things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God's. There is a time and place to evaluate where should my money go regardless of how I feel about it, that I need to do it right above board, or did I do it deceptively? Did I do it in a way that I maximized and leveraged a situation and I came out on top and nobody will find out and nobody will know? Have I done everything honestly? So I I just, I wrote down that question for me. John, can you say, with full integrity, I've done everything honestly. Because money is a test. It's a money, a money test, number four, for love for people. Love for people. Can you make a list of those that you have helped financially in private without anybody else knowing, without you ever talking about it? Is there a list of people that you have bent over backwards to serve without any return and any expectation and that you don't have bragging rights, and that you are not going around humbly bragging about all that you've done and how they haven't given anything back, right? That, that, that's a big L. That's not a W. When we sacrifice in the name of loving people with strings attached and complaints and nagging in return to less than compensatory friendships, can you compensate for what I did for you because now it's time to pay back and I scratched your back, so now it's time. And Christians think differently about loving people sacrificially because money is a, it's a test. It's a test. And lastly, it's a test for this. Here's, here's the ultimate. This is the big one. Love for God. It's a love for God. It's a test to say, who do I love and who am I really serving? God is really concerned with what you do and why you do it. The Judas problem was not 30 pieces of silver. Can we, can we just settle one issue? Judas's problem was never about the payout. It was never about what he could gain. It was about his heart and what he was after 
and what would make him satisfied and fulfill the longings of his heart because Jesus wasn't enough. He wasn't enough. He wasn't paying out. He wasn't giving what was owed, according to Judas. And Judas said no to God and yes to his little g God of greed. And so I, I was looking at a number of quotes, okay? And I, I know throughout the years that we've, we've talked a lot about uh, different authors and, and different individuals throughout history that have had some really powerful statements about certain topics. Any, anybody heard of this crazy cat named John Wesley? Okay. Um, we, we still have a building across the street that for some of us, we still affectionately call it by default. Well, that's the Methodist building, right? That's the Methodist building. Well, who started Methodism? Uh, John Wesley. Okay. And so him and his brother Charles are kind of a big deal of starting more churches than anybody else in history and uh, leading more people to Christ as a, a brother tag team than anybody in American history. Uh, do you think maybe they have some perspective about what is worth living for? And this is what John Wesley said. I, just, I, I had to read it a couple times because I'm like, easy, easy, Wesley. He says this, when a man becomes a Christian, he becomes industrious. That means hardworking, right? Trustworthy, prosperous. If that man, when he gets all he can and saves all he can, does not give all he can, I have more hope for Judas Iscariot than for that man. Everybody say, ouch. Yeah. All right, preacher, dude, we're off to a good start. Thank you for the pep talk. Feeling pretty good. Can we say amen and get to lunch now? Right? Everybody's uh, self-esteem boosted at this point. Uh, why Judas? Why start there? Right? It only gets easier. Okay. So as we we ease our way in, we're we're on to bigger and better things. Here it is. If you're taking notes, how about this? Money is a testimony. It's a testimony. What did what did Joseph do with it? What did Joseph do? Okay. So can we clarify for those that are maybe newer to the Bible? We're not talking about OT Joseph. We're not talking about Prince of Egypt Joseph, okay? Everybody say, not that guy. We're not even talking about Jesus' baby daddy, okay? Not that guy. Everybody say, not that guy, okay? We're, we are talking about Joseph of Arimathea. Arahuehotuotia? Yes, Joseph of Arimathea was a minor role in the whole Holy Week process, okay? So we just celebrated Resurrection Sunday, where did Jesus go after he was taken down off the cross? Joseph had a tomb. Joseph's tomb was one that was purchased with not daddy's money, not great granny's money. It was not inheritance. Joseph worked his behind off, and he purchased something that very few could even afford to, even as a family, and he purchased it for himself. He was going to be the first one to go in. A little backstory with tombs. We're talking about little caves in the side of hills. We're not talking about walking into a graveyard, right? We're not talking about underground, digging six feet, dropping a casket in. We're talking shelves built inside for generations to come so that when great grandpa died, then his bones would be taken off and put on the shelf. So then when grandma comes along, she can be laid in that spot. And then when she kind of dries up, then we can scrape all that, put it on the shelf and the next one. And it's a family multi-generational operation. 
because it's so expensive that for generations you're going, I'm glad somebody along the way was able to afford for us to have a burial spot, right? And what does Joseph do? Here's a test because what? Because money is not just a test, but he was tested and he passed and now he has a testimony. What is it? Well, Matthew 27, if you want to flip forward there, Matthew 27, 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. How come we haven't heard of him? Well, he was, probably, he was a disciple probably from a distance. He was very wealthy. He had a lot at stake, just like Nicodemus possibly came to Christ, but under the cover of darkness, there are many that could lose so much. But think about the testimony of an insanely rich man willing to give such a portion for generations away to this Jesus. And the reality is he was risking his entire reputation and his future on how the government was going to respond and how the culture was going to respond to him saying, I'm going to take him, this controversial figure of Jesus, and I'm going to put him in, in my tomb. This is crazy. He went to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. Joseph risked so much, and yet his status and his wealth was not as valuable as his Savior. And he was willing to do the unthinkable. That's a testimony. Everybody say, that's a testimony. Because money can be a testimony. And Joseph took that body, wrapped it in clean linen shroud, laid it in his own new tomb. It's a new tomb. That's how we know this isn't old money. This is new money. So what kind of testimony do you have with the stuff that God has given you? Because my early years, can, can we have a moment of honesty in God's house? My first years of being a Christian, the stigma of the churches that I was part of, and this is before I entered into ministry, was that the church is a, a place that is stingy, that church people, they gather regularly and they enjoy it. They gather regularly at business meetings to fight and scream and spit and cuss about where every penny is going. And everybody has a very strong opinion about how all of the money is spent when half of the people screaming about it are not the ones that are giving. The church can be a really, really sad place in regards to finances. Not a testimony worthy of hitting the streets with that we live so radically different, but that we're, we're just like the world. And, and my heart is, what if we are a church that our testimony to our community is there is nothing holding us back from sacrificing and generously giving with no expectation in return because we're not doing it for us and we're not doing it to be seen and we're not giving with a guarantee that we're going to get back what we think is due to us but that we give and give and give because you cannot outgive God. And that when we test him as he's testing us, we put him to the test and say, God, I am willing to sacrifice and give. God, show up, right? Provide, because I believe you will, and I believe you'll honor generosity because Joseph 
passed the test. This is so awesome. His testimony is one that he's willing to go public and give it all, and he doesn't care what the results are going to be. And we have two categories throughout church history, okay? And I don't want to take us on a, a deep, deep historical journey, but I at least want to give us a couple, couple categories, okay? So, uh, Jimmy, are you good? You, you want to come up? All right, so, so I, want, I want Jimmy to, he's going to represent our uh, Nabonin claimant uh, Christian buddy, okay? So if you want to stand over here, all right? If you want to stand up on, on stage. There are two different views. I need, I need somebody else to, to rep, rep the other. Jordan, what are you doing back there? You feeling good enough to, to jump around? All right. So if you want to come up here, I'm not picking on you for any reason, but there are, there are some that believe the poor, the holier. Okay. All right. Welcome, poor guy. All right. If you want to hop on stage. So as we think about two extremes, right? Do you think the church has a tendency to pendulum swing from one side to the other? Everybody shake your head. Oh boy, do we ever. We love it, right? We're like at the circus, baby. Every Sunday is just one to the other and one extreme to the other extreme. Well, here's the two. Throughout church history, there has been a prosperity theology or what we call prosperity gospel. Jimmy, welcome. Welcome to the club. You feel very strongly. I know you do. And we also have a side that says money is evil. Get away from it. Don't get near it. Give it all away. Don't even try to manage it because it's going to corrupt you. So poverty theology, welcome to the club. And in the church, it's really, really hard to walk a narrow way in regards to money. It's really, really hard to see it. What I believe is, is God's way. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Poverty theology versus prosperity theology. The idea is money is dangerous. Danger, danger. Somebody say, danger, Will Robinson. Somebody give it to me. There we go. Forsake it, reject it, get it out of here. And money is a blessing and you better pursue it because God's mark of blessing is always cash flow, right, Jimmy? Got it. So the idea that money is so dangerous that the more godly you are, the less you want to do with money, or it's a blessing and it's evidence that you're walking with God and you have faith. Okay, can somebody point to which one's right? Help me out. There's. Uh, how about? How about neither? How about somewhere? In the middle, we would say this. It's not just mo' money, mo' problems, and it's not just mo' money, mo' blessing, okay? It's whether I have much or I have little, I will be content. I have found the secret, Paul said. I've, I found the secret of contentment in the Christian life that no matter where I'm at, my focus is not on much or little because there's some truths that we need to hear, guys. You get to have a seat. Everybody give them a hand. There were wonderful poverty and prosperity representatives, ambassadors, if you will, of each category. Thank you, my representatives. All right. All right. Has anyone ever heard the, the phrase, money is the root of all evil? Uh, is, that, is that in the Bible? Somebody help me out. Okay, so today, today's your day for correction, right? I, I love that God's word is so clear, but yet so easily twisted. First okay? Timothy 6.10 says, for the, somebody shout out love. 
the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Okay? So is that, is that a little less dogmatic and a little bit more biblical? A heart that is in love with stuff and what stuff can do and what stuff can get me and the places stuff can take me and the feeling that stuff can give me is at the heart, at the root system of all different flavors and colors of evil that springs from that. That's what's true. And, and even to this point, this is what Paul said in 1 Timothy 6. It is through this craving and eager for money that some have wandered away from the faith altogether, and they have self-inflicted wounds and so many grievings, so many regrets and heartaches. And the other side is monasticism, which is a big fancy word for those that have lived in abject poverty by choice to get holier and to get closer to God by withdrawing from society, get away from all things physical, because physical is evil and spiritual is where we need to pursue. And that means to isolate and withdraw. I don't know if you know any cats throughout history that have done anything like this, but we have entire uh, groups and sects today of monk orders, right? that choose to live a monastic lifestyle because being around the world makes them unclean and we would say what to that? No, that, that's not the answer either, right? In the world, not, not of it. And so both being wrong, down with the extremes, down with the extremes and up with this, stewardship. A biblical concept of stewardship. If you're taking notes, jot that down, stewardship. And here's, here's one definition. We could say biblical stewardship is responsible management and multiplication of God's money for God's glory. Responsible management and multiplication of God's money for God's glory. So Jesus has not remained silent on here. He says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be also. And so are we exclusively talking about money, even though the series is called God's Money? We're not just talking about cash. We're not just talking about what's in the bank account. Not less than that, but we're talking about much more than that, right? Do you, you recognize that throughout history, that when we've talked about your possessions and your money, that very few people throughout history have, have had a, a stack of coins or money. They have had investments in a lot of different areas, right? Like how many heads of cattle do you have, right? How, how many livestock? You're talking all that you have, all that you possess, no matter what flavor, shape, or color it comes in, all that you have, you are called to be a steward that's going to give an account to be responsible to manage God's stuff because it's not yours. How, how well does this message go over in, in modern America? Not so good. I'm glad that we're all still here. I was expecting about uh, a quarter to, to run out about halfway through the, after the Judas deal, I'm out, right? Lunch is coming early, baby, on this Sunday. It's really hard for us to hear God's perspective because there have been other opinions and other perspectives that have been so deeply ingrained into us in regards to this area that sometimes it's a real struggle to hear the truth. So not just a test. It's not just a testimony. But it's also a tool, 
if you're jotting some notes down. Money is a tool. It's a tool. And as, as we get into 1 Corinthians 4, if you want to flip to 1 Corinthians 4, flip back past the Gospels. Uh, you're going to hit 1 Corinthians a few books later. Um, as you're getting there, Larry Burkett, an author and a financial godly advisor, he wrote this down in regards to money. And it, I, is this in your notes? This might already be in your notes. This might have been one of the, the most simple, clear, but most convicting quotes that I have read. And I've been preparing this series for a couple years now. And I've gone back through this. And Larry, Larry's just so clear. It really comes down to one question. Do you trust God? We're going to go through a number of weeks and we're going to talk about all kinds of different angles of what scripture says about our stuff, our possessions, our money. But every week we need to repeat this question. Do you trust God? Because if we, if we could clear out all the fog and, and all the complications, all the arguments and all the defensiveness about our possessions, our stuff, our money, it really comes down to this one thing. Do you trust God? Is he trustworthy? Is he trustworthy? Because everything you do with all that you have is telling a story about the trustworthiness or lack thereof of the God that you claim to know. So do you know a God that is trustworthy with all that you have? Because all you have is his. So the better question is, can he trust you with his stuff, but it starts with, do you actually trust God? And, and he ends it with this, or have you just been saying you trust God? Somebody say talk is cheap because we can have the right answers and we can say the right things, but it's less about the talk. It comes down to, do you trust God? Do you trust God? So lastly, money is a tool. How are you stewarding it? How are you stewarding it? It's what you do with it, right? It's a test. It's a testimony. But what do you do with the tool of your finances, of your possessions? Stewardship. Stewardship. It is required that we be found faithful as stewards because God is going to request of us an account. A steward owns, help me out, how much does a steward own? Do we believe that? In church, we can have the right answers that I, I know I don't own it, but deep down, I kind of really worked my tail off for that, right? Like, do you know what it took me to pay that off? It's mine. Do you know how hard I worked and paid my money to invest in that thing that's mine? I wonder who needs to be set free. It's not mine. Who's the one that gave me the strength to even work? Who gave me the wisdom to even save up? Who allowed me the opportunity to possess anything at all? It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not mine. I'm a steward. I own nothing. God is the owner of it all. But do we believe that? And so, you know, we, we kicked off with Wesley, all right, our homeboy, John Wesley. But guess what? He's back for more, all right? Round two, if you can handle it. This is what Wesley says. Do you not know that God entrusted you with that money after you have cared for your necessities 
to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to help the stranger, the widow, the fatherless, and indeed as far as it will go to relieve the needs of all mankind. How can you? How dare you defraud the Lord by applying it to any other purpose? Everybody say, ouch. Randy Alcorn says, abundance isn't God's provision for me to live in luxury. It's his provision for me to help others live. God entrusts me with his money, not to build my kingdom on earth, but to build his kingdom in heaven. And lastly, of these quotes that I found so helpful, Jim Elliott said this. I don't know if you know anything about Jim Elliott. Him and some buddies from Wheaton College in Chicago, they took off. A lot of them were in their early 20s, and they went as a missionary team to Ecuador to an unreached people group. And within the course of their first months, they encountered this tribe that was a cannibalistic tribe. And these tribes were at war with each other and they were willing to go. And before they were speared to death in the name of Christ on a little beach after landing and making contact, he had penned these words. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And I wonder even if we, we got a taste of what it's like to follow Jesus by forsaking all the visions that we're given from the world of what success looks like and what prosperity looks like. And if we are to reject and forsake all of our comforts in the here and now, to live for a God that has guaranteed to provide for your every need. It's a test. It's a tool. It's not evil. And let's do this. Can somebody stand up and read our last passage? Because I want this to be a portion of Scripture that you would meditate on throughout the week. 1 Corinthians 4. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Somebody have that? Just jump up. 1 and 2. I want us to be a people that don't just think about the Word on Sunday morning, but all week long that we are in this word that comes from God, that's changing our hearts, changing our lives. And in regards to stewardship, here's a testimony that Paul wanted. He wanted his life, his legacy, and his story to end with this. He wanted to enter in to the kingdom and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And all that have come before us that have been faithful know stewards are to be found faithful, utilizing all that they have to leverage for God's kingdom, not their own. But some things need to change. And it's not about readjusting your budget. And I hope week by week as we go through this, you are not considering, hey, honey, maybe we should give a few more dollars in the plate. Not helpful. What God is asking is that you would surrender all that you have and all that you are to the king, to the king of the universe, and that you enter in as a servant, as a steward, longing to hear well done, longing to live a lifestyle in every area that's going to give an account, and we long to hear well done. You are a steward, and you knew that you were stewarding things that didn't belong to you, and you knew the owner was going to ask, what did you do with my stuff? And you lived in light of eternity. May that be the testimony of the church. May that be your 
testimony, not of anxiety and worry, not of comparing, not of complaining, not of expectation that when you reach a certain place in life that you'll finally be happy when you have enough because it's never enough unless you're happy right now with what you have and you're leveraging all that you have for a kingdom that is guaranteed to succeed because your kingdom, it's gonna fail. It's gonna fall apart. But God guarantees his kingdom, it's coming. His will, it's gonna be done. Your investment in an eternal kingdom, it's gonna be worth it and it's actually going to succeed.